Do you know what FAQs are? They're frequently asked questions. You find them in the literature and on the website of almost every organisation which provides services. Let me give you a personal example. Uh, as you will know, a few months ago we moved house and we needed to try and find out who supplied the services, the gas and electricity to our new property. We suspected it was Scottish gas. And so, what do you do? Well, you get on the telephone and you ring up Scottish Gas. And a disembodied voice says, you will now hear four options. And you listen to the four options. Press one, two, three or four. So, you press number two. And the voice says, you will now hear a further three options. And eventually, after all the options, you will hear a voice saying, please wait, you'll be connected to an operator, but all our lines are busy at the present time. And as you're doing this, a voice then says, why not log on to our website? So, when you've waited quite a few minutes and got frustrated, <coughs> you do as I did. You switch on the computer, you boot it up, and you log on Scottish Gas, which then directs you to British Gas. And on the British Gas side, there are FAQs, frequently asked questions. And so you scroll down them eventually, as I did, you find one that says, do you supply gas and electricity to my new home? Eureka. I won't bore you with the answer, as it's a thermological, not theological question. <laughs> but I am interested in the question at the bottom, when you've done all this, there's, there's a question that said, did we manage to answer the question to your satisfaction, yes or no? And whichever one you click on, because I did both, <coughs> it says, thank you for your feedback. Now, you may wonder what on earth this has got to do with our series in Jeremiah entitled Living in Hope. Well, actually, <laughs> thinking about it, yes, Living in Hope, but not of gas <laughs> or electricity, uh, but something far more important and complex a frequently asked question, which today we find on the lips of the prophet Jeremiah himself in Jeremiah 12. So, turn to your Bibles and look with me at this frequently asked question. What I want to do is read the question and look at it with you, and then we'll look at the answer that he got from God, because it's God he's asking. Jeremiah 12 Verses 1 to 4. Here's the question. It's actually described in the NIV as a complaint, but it really is a question. Here's Jeremiah talking to God. You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You've planted them, they've taken root, they grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, 
He will not see what happens to us. Okay, here's the question. It's a question that's been asked time and time again by people throughout history, by people who believe in God. In fact, if there was a complaint section in heaven, this question, or some form of it, would be the most frequently asked question. Quite simply, it is, why do the wicked prosper? Verse 1. Here's his question to God. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do the faithless live at ease? Now, every day, in the news, in the media, you will read stories and see pictures which provoke this question. Here's just some simple examples I plucked out as I was preparing this. In Zimbabwe, opposition leader Morgan Svangirai savagely beaten along with his followers in a prayer rally. Yet President Mugabe continues to defy world opinion as a once great and prosperous nation slides further into despair. Question, why do the wicked prosper? In Darfur, in Sudan, villages continue to be razed to the ground. People raped, killed, brutalized, several hundred thousand by our militia, supported by the Sudanese government who make promises but never fulfill them. Why do the wicked prosper? This week I was at the Scottish Parliament for a presentation to some MSPs and others by Dr. Joseph de Souza, who preached here some time ago about the plight of the Dalit and touchable peoples in India. And he described a recent incident which has provoked widespread concern in India. A Dalit family, mother, son, two daughters, attacked by a mob in their village, stripped, beaten, brutalized, physically, sexually, killed. Only the father survived. Finally, 35 people brought to justice and the case dismissed for lack of evidence. 250 million people, Dalits, still in slavery in India. All these years on, why do the wicked prosper? Now, of course, if you don't believe in God, this is not a problem for you. It's just the way the world is. Survival of the fittest. Might is right. But no matter what we claim or believe about God, all of us instinctively want good to be rewarded and evil to be punished. And we get upset if this is not the case, do we not? If you get mugged in the street and your assailant is brought to court, but he's set free because he stands up in court and says, I'm sorry, it's just a national, natural evolutionary outcome of my selfish genes. You would be upset, would you not? But if you do believe in God, then this question, why do the wicked prosper, is a big question indeed. How do you answer the question? Why do the wicked prosper? This is Jeremiah's problem. For Jeremiah believes in God, and not just any old God. He believes in the one true and living God, the God of Israel, the God who has revealed himself, the one who created the world, who sustains all things by the word of his power, the one who has at his command myriad angelic armies. So, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Why do they live at ease? Now, the usual answer to this question, or some form of it, is one of two options. 
Either God can't do anything about it, or he won't do anything about it. Either his power is limited, or his justice is flawed. 1981, a Jewish rabbi, Harold Kushner, wrote a best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Prompted by the death of his teenage son, he addresses the flip side of Jeremiah's question. Not why do the wicked prosper, but also, why do the good suffer? And if you read the book, in short, his answer is, God is not all-powerful. Notice, however, Jeremiah does not for a moment entertain this possibility. Because he knows God. So if the wicked prosper, it is not because God's hands are tied. Instead, Jeremiah focuses, look at the text, on the other alternative. Not questioning the power of God, but rather questioning the justice of God. Notice how he starts, he says, You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Where is the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Jeremiah begins by affirming, he says, Lord, if I bring a case to court in heaven, the courts of heaven, there's no doubt I'm going to get a fair hearing. For God the judge is always just, or to use the technical Bible word, he's always righteous. That's what he believes in theory, but experience seems to contradict this. Because wicked people are prospering, faithless people don't seem to have a care in the world. That's the issue he raises with God. Yet I would speak with you, he says, about your justice. He's in no doubt that God has the power to act. He doesn't doubt God's sovereignty. In fact, at the same time as questioning the justice of God, he affirms the sovereignty of God. Look what he says in verse 2. You've planted these people. you put them there. They've taken root. They grow f- and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. He says, Lord, you've established these people. You've planted them. You're the sovereign Lord. And now they're prospering, Lord. You've not just planted them there, they're doing really well. And yet they give you lip service, but their hearts are far from you. They live wickedly. So that's Jeremiah's assessment of God's character. That the Lord is powerful, he could do something. But if he's just, why doesn't he do something? And that's the basis of his appeal, which follows. He makes what you could call a judgment call. To the Lord. Let me paraphrase. Just look at the verses 3 and 4. Okay? He says, Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Paraphrase. Lord, if my understanding of your character is correct, then drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. If my understanding of your character is correct, then punish the wicked. And... How long will the land lie parched? The grass in every field be withered because those who live in it are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. And don't delay, Lord. Things are getting worse. And moreover, the people are saying, you'll not see what happened to us. People think, you don't know what's happening, Lord. You see it? My understanding of a character is correct. Then punish the wicked. Don't delay. Things are getting worse. And people think you don't know what's going on. Now, I wonder how you respond to what Jeremiah asked the Lord to do. Pretty strong stuff, isn't it? Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. If you're here for the last in our series, is this the kind of prayer that you can affirm 
when Jeremiah prays it. Amen, Lord. Yes, do it. Well, a lot will depend on whether this is a philosophical question you're debating from your armchair or pew, or whether it's a personal question you're asking from the pain of a situation in which you personally are suffering. See, Jeremiah was hurting. His own country was suffering devastation from the actions of wicked people. And now he's just discovered his own family secretly are conspiring to kill him. So, while we may not feel comfortable saying amen to a prayer like that, let's not be too hasty to judge him and others like him for intemperate language. But in any case, in the last analysis, what matters is not what we think about what Jeremiah says. What matters is, what does God say to this kind of question? How does God answer? So, let's look at the second half of the chapter. And when you do... This is pretty surprising stuff, I think you'll find, if you read it carefully. Look carefully at what he says. This is God's answer. Verse 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Your brothers, your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, therefore I hate her. Has not my inheritance become to me like a speckled bird of prey that other birds of prey surround and attack? Go and gather all the wild beasts. Bring them to devour. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They'll turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. Over all the barren heights and the desert, destroyers will swarm. For the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other. No one will be safe. They will sow wheat but reap thorns. They will wear themselves out but gain nothing. So bear the shame of your harvest because of the Lord's fierce anger. This is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who seize the inheritance I gave to my people Israel, I'll uproot them from their lands. I'll uproot the house of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and bring each of them back to his own inheritance and his own country. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, As surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. But if any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot it and destroy it, declares the Lord. Now you may ask yourself, if you're concentrating this morning, if you're reading what's there, you may ask yourself, what kind of answer is that? In fact, God's immediate answer to Jeremiah's question is to ask him two questions. don't have time to look at it, but I encourage you to look at similar situations in the Bible. So often when people ask God questions, his answer is to ask them more questions. The best example is the book of Job, who was suffering personally. And in chapter 38, after he's gone through all his complaints... He sort of pauses for a breath after 37 chapters. Not surprising. All, the, all that he's gone through. And the Lord then responds. I did a quick count. He asked Jeremiah at least 64 questions in response to Jeremiah's problem. So why? Well, what is important to understand is the kind of answer that God gives. And still gives when we wrestle with such frequently asked questions. In the Bible speaks today, commentary on Jeremiah, Derek Kidner 
writes this, and it's very important. If you're making notes, good to see some of you are. God's answer is never philosophical, as though he owes us explanations, but always pastoral to rebuke us, to reorientate us, or to reassure us. Now, keep that perspective in mind, and as you look at God's answer, you'll see that his answer is in two parts. All right? In the first, we hear the Lord challenging Jeremiah's commitment. Here's the first thing that God says to him after he's offloaded this big question. Why do the wicked prosper? He says, Jeremiah, if you have raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Now, I'd be surprised if many or any counsellor would ever answer somebody like that. Here's a guy who comes and he's struggling with the problem of evil. Suffering from the actions of evil people. And he's really hurting. We'd probably sympathise with him. Give him a cup of tea, reassure him, tell him every cloud is a silver lining, always look on the bright side of things, and I'm with you, brother. But instead, the Lord says to Jeremiah, let me paraphrase again, if you are struggling with your present situation, you need to know, Jeremiah, things are going to get a lot worse. So are you up for the challenge? Jeremiah says, Lord, things are really bad. And the Lord says, you ain't seen nothing yet. Are you up for it? Jeremiah says, you've been competing like a guy in a, a long-distance race. Imagine a guy, you know, at the end of the London Marathon. And he's running along with all the runners. And he finally staggers through the last bit, you know. And he says, right, okay. Take a quick drink of water. You're in the next race. Uh, that one down there. Yeah, next to the Palomino and the piebald racehorse there. Are you up for it? He says, you've been stumbling around in the foothills of Anathoth, where he lived. But the Lord says, the next leg of your journey is going to take you down to the Jordan Valley, which in those days was full of things like Asiatic lions, and jungle and swamps. And the Lord says, how are you going to manage in that situation? What are you going to say? I'm a prophet, get me out of here. So why does the Lord say this to Jeremiah? Think, this is the most unsympathetic answer I've ever heard. Well, this is the prophet's calling. The Lord's calling to Jeremiah. Do you remember way back when we started this series? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The Lord has given him this commission. Nothing has changed. It's not as though Jeremiah enlisted under false pretenses or, you know, the, bit, the hard bits were written in small print at the bottom or like uh, James did, you know, hidden under a bit of paper so you only found out when you signed down for it. Now the Lord told him what to expect but he promised to protect him. Go back again to chapter 1. He should be sustained by the Lord's promises. This is what the Lord said when Jeremiah called him. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome, for I am with you. I'll rescue you, declares the Lord. What says Jeremiah? What do you expect? told you. You need to remember what I said to you. 
And the Lord has just told him something else as well. He says, Jeremiah, you're in this terrible conflict against your own people, the priests and everybody else, but don't worry because you've got the best intelligence system in the world. Because no matter what these people do, I can hear them and I'm going to tell you what they're up to. So as Jeremiah sailing along preaching his message, and the Lord says, by the way, Jeremiah, I've got a word for you. Your own family are plotting against you. This is the previous chapter, chapter 11. They're going to kill you. They think they are, but don't worry, Jeremiah. They'll be the ones who suffer because I'm with you and you're okay. So Jeremiah should be reassured by the Lord's warning in chapter 11 because the Lord revealed that plot to me. I knew of it, for at that time he showed me what they were doing. And the Lord promised at the end of chapter 11, he says, I'll punish them and I'll protect you. He has all the promises of God he needs, all the warnings he needs. Yet Jeremiah then complains and says, why don't you do something about this, Lord? And the Lord says, I've already told you, I'm going to do it. He wants same day judgment. But the Lord tells him, things are going to get a lot worse before it happens. And he says, Jeremiah, will you stay the course? Will you see it through? And to further reassure him, the Lord then repeats what he just told him. Just remember, Jeremiah, your brothers, your own family, even they have betrayed you. They've raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. And his book on Jeremiah, taken from the, this verse, Run With the Horses, Eugene Peterson paraphrases what the Lord says to Jeremiah. He says, life is difficult, Jeremiah. Are you going to quit at the first wave of opposition? I called you to a life of purpose far beyond what you think you're capable of, living and promised you adequate strength to fulfill your destiny. What is it you really want, Jeremiah? Do you want to shuffle along with this crowd or do you want to run with the horses? Now, what about us this morning? Is this a word for you? Is it a word for me? Is there a Christian here who's finding the going tough? And you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what I'm doing here in Charlotte Chapel this morning. All my friends are still in bed. They're not worried about whether you put the clock forward or backwards. Look at my program this week. I'm helping with the uniformed organization this week. I've got a committee meeting on Wednesday. I'm trying to serve the Lord, do a job, maintain my family. Something's got to go and... What is it? Well, what did God call you to? called you to follow him and when you enlisted as a Christian when you followed the call of Jesus what was his call? then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said if anyone would come after me he must deny himself take up his cross and follow me for whoever wants to lose his life save his life will lose it for whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it Mark 8 34 to 35 that was the call you responded to was it not? And I simply say that there are times in our lives when we need to stand up and be counted and we need to respond afresh to the challenge of Christ. Here's the Apostle Paul, near the end of his life, in prison. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Now, as you do, I'm not minimizing the difficulties. But I'm saying this is what God called us to. 
And it may well get worse. But if you do, you'll prove the power of Christ. Lovely, we already saw the verse. The same book of Philippians. He goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And you prove the promises of Christ. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So I pause at this point and say, how about you? How about me? Are we ready to run with the horses? That's the first part of the Lord's answer to Jeremiah. But it's not the whole answer. Notice the second part. And I will go quicker here in case you're looking and thinking. He's only at verse 5 and there's 17 verses to come. There's a second part. Challenging Jeremiah's commitment. But the Lord also speaks about experiencing Jeremiah's concern. Do you notice it switches to first person singular? I, I, my... It's not as though Jeremiah contacts the complaints department in the courts of heaven and a disembodied voice says, please choose one of the following options. And the number two is, why do the wicked prosper? And he press a button and a disembodied voice says, read Job 38 to 41. No, notice what the Lord does here. It's really wonderful. He takes Jeremiah's concerns and says, I know what you're feeling, Jeremiah, because I feel the same, only worse. Wonderful. He says, Jeremiah, you're hurting. Believe me, so am I. And in these verses, you feel, as you read them, you should feel what the Lord is saying. It's not just, you know, I will now give you a philosophical answer to the problem of evil. Suffering. So, the Lord says, Jeremiah, I want you to feel what I'm feeling. You could call it the pain of love. You see it? First of all, there's the pain of loss. The Lord says, the sin of my people means I've got to give them up. I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of my enemies. Then there's the pain of rejection. My people have turned against me. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me. Therefore, I hate it. It's emotive language. said it before, that hate and love are not exclusive. It's only those you love you can really hate. True sense of the word. Love is indifference, apathy, couldn't care less. We feel with the Lord the pain of judgment. Go through the verse, he says, I can see these other shepherds, these other leaders, ravaging my land as my people are picked on like a bird that stands out and it's mobbed. My land is ravaged, no one cares. And most painful of all, the Lord says, it is my hand behind it that wields the sword of judgment on my people who reap what they've sown because of the Lord's just anger. There is the pain of anger. For anger, unlike apathy again, is a painful emotion. They will sow wheat but reap thorns. They will wear themselves out but gain nothing. So bear the shame of your harvest because of the Lord's fierce anger. Jeremiah says, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Why don't you do something? And the Lord says, in fact, if you read it in the original Hebrew, it's what's called the prophetic perfect, where you begin at verse 11. It's actually in the past perfect completed tense as though it's already happened. Literally, it says, I have forsaken my house. I've abandoned my inheritance. I've given the one I love into the hands of my enemies. I've already done it. It's so certain that it's going to happen. 
prophets use these tenses to say, here's the Lord saying something and it's so certain it's already happened. Not actually in time, but in reality, it's already a done deed. But the intemperate words of Jeremiah dragged them off like sheep to be butchered, set them apart for the day of judgment, slaughter. They're tempered by a love that sorrows over the wages of sin, that weeps as it must hand over the pay packet for wickedness. And this Jeremiah doesn't need. He needs to understand it, but he needs to feel it. And so do we. We need to know that God feels. We don't worship Allah or Akbar, a disembodied God up there who is just the God of power. We worship the God of compassion. Kidner again writes, This still speaks to many of our most wounding situations. The pain of ingratitude, indifference, disappointment, desertion by a spouse, defiance by a son or a daughter, are things that God himself knows very well. And such is the great love of God, that he also offers, as they come to the conclusion of the chapter, he offers a future hope out of the ashes of judgment. Yes, Jeremiah was right. It was the Lord who planted these people. And the Lord is going to uproot them as well. This is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbours who seize the inheritance I gave my people Israel, I'll uproot them from their lands, I'll uproot the house of Judah from among them. The wicked are not just the wicked in Judah, but the wicked nations who cash in when Israel is invaded. The Lord says, I'll deal with them as well. But amazingly, the Lord promises to replant them back again. He's not abandoned this project. After I uproot them, I'll again have compassion and bring them back to their own inheritance and his own country. And even more remarkably, the Lord says, these nations, even these wicked nations... I'm going to bring them and integrate them back into my people if they'll only turn to me. Established among the Lord's people. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among the people. But only if they listen to the Lord. The only other alternative for them and for us is God's judgment. But if any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. So that's the Lord's answer to Jeremiah's question. But let me conclude with a final question. Back to the one at the end of the triviality of British Gas website. Final question. Did we manage to answer the question to your satisfaction? Yes or no? Well, the answer for Jeremiah was yes. As the Lord warned him, things did get worse. Much worse. Good King Josiah stupidly went out to battle and was killed. Jeremiah's own support dwindled to a handful of people. The nation turned on him and accused him of being a traitor. He was verbally abused, physically abused, as James said, thrown into prison, thrown into a well to die. And this went on for year after year after year. And finally, all he said came to pass. 
as the rampaging Babylonian army smashed through the walls of Jerusalem, razed the temple to the ground, raped, mutilated, killed and carried off everyone who really mattered into exile. And you know what the Babylonians said to Jeremiah? You're one of our supporters. Come with us and we'll give you a cushy number. You can have a prophet's retirement plan. Jeremiah said, no, I stay with my people. You know how it all ends? We ever get there in this series? Stupid people he stayed with rebelled again against the Babylonians and realizing what was coming their way, they ran for their lives to Egypt. What did Jeremiah do? He said, I'll stay with my people. They said, no, you won't. And they carted him off into obscurity. That's the last you hear of him. Disappears from the pace of history. But through it all, he remained faithful. He kept going to the end, to the end of the race, till he received the final commendation. Want an epitaph for Jeremiah on his gravestone? He ran with the horses. Wonderful. So what about us in answer to the big questions we ask God? Why do the wicked prosper? Why don't you do something about evil? Why don't you sort the world out? Are we satisfied with the answer? Well, you should be because God has given us a much better answer. A much fuller answer to the big question. The compassion of God for the world was not just shown in the word that he spoke to Jeremiah, but the word who became flesh and became one of us. And he lived among us, despised and rejected by men. A suffering servant, finally condemned to die a death on a cross. Doing what? Bearing the wickedness, that, the punishment for the wickedness we deserved. To satisfy the justice of God. And to reconcile the big problem. The love of God and the justice of God. Meet at the cross of Christ. How can a God of love allow suffering? People ask us. Because the God of love suffered himself on the cross. And so through him, all the promises here are fulfilled. Other nations are now included. That's why we're here. Few of us are Jews by birth. We've been included in. Why? Because the good news is for all, for God's soul of the world. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's why our series is called Living in Hope. So what's your answer to the question? Satisfied with the answer? Listen, I'm satisfied because God is satisfied with what his son did when he died on the cross. He proved it by raising him from the dead. And that's why our verse for the year features a cross. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Isn't that good news? Let's pray together.